Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, maybe you can already tell, but this is, uh, this is about the time of the week that I start to struggle with my voice a little bit. Um, you know, as a pastor, you, you speak multiple times a week, but you don't speak every single day usually, and then also a great conversation uh, with a lot of you throughout the day, and then also over in the retreat center uh, with Matt and Austin and, and Pastor Jim staying up way too late, uh, much later than we should be, and uh, so I apologize for my voice a little bit this morning, but hopefully we make it through this last session together. Uh, I wanted to start off with an explanation and some appreciation today anyway, an explanation for those of you who are copious note takers and you really like taking those notes, you may have noticed that my first three sessions, uh, I had an outline for you. And um, the, the last two sessions, yesterday and today, uh, there's just a blank page with a title, um, which is what the cool speakers do, right? They just send a blank page. But uh, I, I'm not trying to be the cool speaker. Uh, my messages weren't done when the notes were due. Uh, I had three out of five, and uh, I was actually talking to Matt about that, and um, I'm not going to tell you how recently that was, but uh, Matt was a little worried for me. Even he acknowledged, he's like, yeah, he's still got two more sermons to write. So, But we got them done, but I just did not have the outlines done in time uh, to get them into your booklet. So uh, I'll try to share those, and looks like we've got some technical difficulties going on today. Uh, so I'll try to repeat those main points for those of you who like to write them down, and uh, we'll, we'll get through this together. Uh, so that's my explanation. Uh, my appreciation is just simply this. Um, I just want to say genuinely thank you so very, very much uh, for all of the encouragement and, and feedback uh, I've received this week. Um, so many of you have not just said, hey, good job, hey, we enjoy it, but even come up to me and said, boy, this is, this is something I've learned, or this is something that I learned about creation. And I told you at the beginning, I'm not a creation scientist, uh, I'm not an apologist, uh, I'm just a pastor, husband, dad, uh, who is looking at our world and looking at the first couple chapters of Genesis and saying, boy, there is so much here that helps us today. And so I've been very encouraged by you, and, and you have instructed me and, and showed me things as well. And I knew when I tackled this that it would be, uh, in some ways, um, you know, a lot of review, a lot of very basic truths. And I just said, Lord, just use it to encourage folks. And praise the Lord, I believe he's answering that prayer, and I appreciate uh, how you have communicated that to me. Uh, that's been a blessing to my heart as well. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, the singing this week, Austin. I really appreciate that. I know we got cut short here on this last one, um, but you, you, uh, you had us singing the goodness of God right before everything blitzed out, and uh, I, I didn't pray that stuff would blitz out, but that song is actually a perfect setup for what we're looking at today, so maybe that was the divine finger of God touching our screens this morning or the projectors, but the goodness of God is a great focus of where we're going to be. So appreciate Pastor Matt inviting me to come. It's been great fellowshipping and sharing the platform with, uh, with Pastor Jim as well, and, and just so appreciate uh, you guys being here at this camp, spending time with your family, and opening your hearts to the Word of God. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to finish out today uh, the rest of chapter 2. Uh, kind of the longest text that we've looked at all week, uh, but we'll, we'll get together, we'll get through it together. Genesis chapter 2, and uh, begin in verse 4. Follow along on your devices in your Bibles as I read to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. 
And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided, and it became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hevalah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and oxen stone are there. Onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you surely shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its, its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Heavenly Father, give us understanding by your spirit today. Apply your perfect word uh, to our hearts. Uh, Give me strength physically and mentally to communicate to your people your wonderful truth. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. As you look at that first verse, this is uh, moving out of the prologue of Genesis into one of the first major sections indicated by that word, toldot, which we translate as, these are the generations of. And we're just looking at chapter one and two, the creation of the world. And there has been uh, debate sometimes over what is the significance of chapter 2 as it follows chapter 1 and seems to repeat a lot of the same things. Well, if we talk about taking a closer look at things this morning, uh, I can give you an illustration of how quickly, uh, how easy it is for us to gloss over things when we think we already know, when we think we already understand And uh, I recall being in South America. My wife and her family spent time as missionaries in Ecuador. And we were able to go down there. And I was in the bathroom. I was getting ready to take a shower. And I looked down at those knobs and and, uh, turned on both spigots at once. And the water was coming out. And uh, it was just a little too hot for me. So I reached down for the knob marked with a C and began to turn that C on a little bit more. And the water got hotter and hotter. And so I reached down and trying to get out of the scalding water and cranked that sea a little more and only proceeded to cook myself a little more. Uh, Because sea in Spanish stands for what? Caliente. Hot, not cold. Uh, I looked down and I saw a sea and I made a, a very American assumption and I, it wasn't until I finally saw, okay, there's a C and an F for Frio. There's a, there's a C and an F, not a C and an H. And we very easily can look over things and make assumptions and, and God does not want us to do that with these most simple, basic, clear truths in Genesis 1 and 2. 
The debate over Genesis 1 and 2, is this a retelling? Is this some kind of different creation account? Is there a, is there a different author? Uh, are there contradictions here that we, that we need to worry about? Um, we, we don't need to get into any of that this morning because I think the simple truth is that what has been explained, what has been shown to us, revealed to us as clear historical fact in chapter 1, the creation of the world, God is now developing for us, for our understanding in chapter 2. Chapter 1 gives us the clear creation account, and chapter 2 is now going to unpack some, some emphasis of that that God wants us to understand. The timeline of creation is no longer the focus, but the implications of God's creation. And we're going to move through this, and we're going to see the information is lined up more topically in chapter 2. But God has done that. God has inspired chapter 2 that way so that we would not overlook some very important things. Even in verse 2, you see that it starts off by saying, the heavens and the earth, and then the last part of the verse says, the earth and the heavens. That's a very simple thing there, but I hope you notice that that change in wording because it's probably, more than likely, a very intentional shift by the author to see a change in focus. It's not God in heaven looking down on what he has made, but now it's as if man is looking from earth to heaven and understanding the implications of his own creation. Mankind, his accountability, his responsibility, and his relationship to God and how he is to live is the focus and implication of chapter 2. So the big idea this morning, again, I'll try to repeat these things if I can, since you don't have them on the screen, but the big idea, if you would want to take this away from this morning, please, is God's gracious provision for man. Chapter 2 is all about God's gracious provision for man. For man, and we'll also see that includes mankind as well. We will see a specific focus on man, the man Adam, but this gracious provision is going to be applied to Adam and Eve, to mankind as well. We're going to see God's intentional focus, God's design, God's care for his creation, God's gracious provision for his creation, and that provision for his creation is the basis of their accountability and their responsibility to him. We talked about parenting last night. And we as parents know and understand we have this responsibility, we have an accountability uh, to care for our children until a certain age. And, and, and Pastor Jim said it very well. He said, look, kids, uh, you're under a roof, you're being fed, you have a responsibility back to your parents. Well, God's gracious provision for mankind is the basis of their responsibility back to him. We're going to see the theme of blessing very clearly in chapter 2 as well as God begins to pour out his blessing upon mankind. So let's look at this, the gracious provision for man, God's gracious provision for man. What do we see as the first provision? Well, number one, we see the garden. That's number one this morning, the garden. I've already highlighted some of this, but I just want you to, to know how reading your own Bible, going back to that first illustration, there are simple things in your Bibles, in your laps this morning, that can help you read well. And if you have a Bible, it may set off verse 4. Again, maybe there's some blank space around it, or maybe the, the font or the format is just a little bit different. Well, that is significant, uh, this is a, a poetic structure here. There's a textual indication that this is something that's supposed to get your attention. And it is that first toldot marker that is telling us that we're, we're moving forward. We're moving into more information. And then we go into verses 5 and 6. And what you have here is a description of uncultivated land. Now, when exactly... 
uh, is this description, what, what part of the six days of creation are we dealing with here? That's not so much the focus as just the description, the land is uncultivated. Everything's there, land is there, uh, plants uh, are ready to be there, but they, they have not been cultivated. And the reason that that is being highlighted, the reason we see what is undeveloped is because of what God is going to do in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So God has created, he has set the table, and he says, my creation needs to be under dominion, my, my plants need to be cultivated, and you understand when I say needs, it's not that God created Adam because of any deficiency in God, but God had created creation to be ruled over and, and have man to have dominion over it. And so here it is, and he says, okay, it's, it's time for me to put Adam in here, and I'm going to create him, Adam, man. Notice that it says, the Lord God. This also is interesting because we see Yahweh Elohim, and he formed man. He did not just speak and man came into existence. He certainly could have done that. He spoke light into creation. He spoke the galaxies into creation. But when it came to making man, God formed him. It's actually interesting. This is, there's almost an artistic feel to man being made. And I know that's exactly the way you ladies feel this morning. When you look at your husband's chiseled body, what a work of art. God intentionally formed man. Adam, it's the same Hebrew word for man, and it comes from Adama, which is dirt or earth. So man, Adam, is formed from Adama, the dirt or the earth. God took what was there and formed it, fashioned it, molded it, made it, created it with, with artistry, into man. The language becomes even more intimate as we read the rest of verse 7. It says, And God breathed into him the breath of life. Now again, this is very, very significant because when it says that God breathed into him, that is, that is intimate language. I mean, it's the idea of to share breath. Now, I know a lot of you up here at camp, and I would call many of you my friends, but I don't want to share breath with you. There's one person in this room that I'm willing to share breath with, and that's not even at all points in the day that we want to share breath. <laughs> this sharing breath, this God breathing into Adam just has that picture there. Think about when you're, when you're right there in front of your, your spouse and you, you can literally feel their breath. That's how close God is. God has come intimately close to Adam and he breathes into him the breath of life and man becomes a living creature, a living soul, a living being, unique life is now in Adam. Yes, the animals were alive, but after God shared breath with Adam, Adam was uniquely alive. He had become a living soul. Verse 8 tells us, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Man had been created, but now we see God's care for his creation. We see God's grace, we see God's goodness, and we see God's generosity on display. He formed the garden, and he put them there. It's an interesting word. It, it's almost as if God has, has picked up Adam and he's walking carefully with him and he rests him right there in the garden. 
I don't know what maybe is in your house or, or something that has been uh, displayed very intentionally. Maybe it's a, a picture that you like. Maybe it's a, a special vase or, or something like that. Or, or maybe there's something in the garden or out in your yard that's, that's significant to you. And, and you've prepared everything around it and you got everything. And then the last thing you did with this home improvement project or this yard project was you, you took that special thing and you set it right there. All of the work, all of the preparation, everything that had gone around was to point to and be the location for this, this item. And that's, that's what God has done. He has made this, this garden, not just to show off what a horticulturist he is. He has made this garden as the place where he would put Adam to be. And look at the description of the garden in verse 9. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Pleasant to the sight and good for food. This garden of Eden, which means a garden of pleasure, a garden of delight, is not only pleasing, but it's practical. It's beautiful and it's bountiful. The garden had it all. Adam and Eve in the garden had no needs. They lacked nothing. And that's very significant when you start to study chapter 3. They had all they needed. This place had been divinely prepared for them. And we see in the rest of the verse that at the center, there are two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Please. Let's make a very, very clear note here. We cannot, we cannot, and we must not accuse God of some kind of cosmic stinginess. We cannot look in our mind's eye and say, all of the other trees and the rest of the garden must have been these thorny, shriveled up shrubs and right there at the center were these two beautiful trees that were so tempting. No. Their location in the center of the garden is significant. And it helps us know that they were there. But all of the words, all of the language, everything that has come before it and after it tells us that God has over and abundantly supplied everything that his creation needs in this garden. God has been good, God has been lavish, and without a doubt, mankind has everything they need. We'll go quickly uh, over verses 10 through 14. This is a little bit of a geographical uh, digression, and it's driving home the point of God's gracious provision. Really, those, those verses there are just highlighting uh, how wonderful, how grand, and how majestic this garden is. Uh, it's not a road map. Those verses are not for us to try to figure out uh, how to get back to the Garden of Eden. I don't care if your name is Indiana. Um, that's not what this is about. This is for us to see the greatness of God's provision for mankind. It's divinely prepared for him. Now look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. He took man and he put him in the garden. God has made Adam a place and now he gives Adam a purpose. Work is not part of the curse. Having a job, doing what we're created to do, ruling correctly and responsibly over our environment is not part of the curse. The job that God gave Adam to do gave Adam purpose. And even more than that, we see that it is part of Adam's response of worship to God. God gave him a place and God gave him a purpose. This is another of God's gracious provisions. God said, have dominion. And then he gave him a place to have dominion. This is God's generous 
gracious care for his creation. Adam is completely surrounded by God's goodness. He is surrounded by abundance. And what those two trees are representing is a freedom to respond in worshipful obedience or rebellious disobedience. Of course, that's where we go in chapter 3. Man is created by God. Man is cared for by God. Man has received graciously. And in verse 16 and 17, and the Lord God, look at the word, commanded. Commanded. This is significant. God has been speaking. God has been saying. But now, God enters into covenant relationship with Adam. God is commanding him. God is saying to Adam, okay, as your creator, as your authority, as the one who is graciously given to you, now here's what I require. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil You shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gives a command, and God gives a warning of consequence. Now remember, as we studied yesterday, God's creation of mankind is unique. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Man is created in God's image. Man has now received the breath of life. This means that that man is alive and he knows it. Okay? That's significant. Man is alive and he knows it. Do you know whether or not you are alive this morning? Raise your hand if you know that you are alive. We've had a mass death in the last 30 seconds, okay? I'm just trying to wake some of you up. This is significant. Man is alive. Man knows it. And now man is being drawn into a responsive relationship with God. He's been placed for a purpose. He's been given blessing. But that blessing comes with responsibility. Adam was placed in the garden, listen to this, not just to tend it, Not just to keep it, but to worship and obey God. Man's activity in the garden, exercising dominion, cultivating the garden, was worship and service. And his activity of not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was worship and obedience. By his activity and his obedience, Adam was doing exactly what he was created to do. He was glorifying God. That is significant. That opportunity needed to be there. It was placed there because it was Adam's purpose to live in grateful obedience to God and thereby worship and glorify God. Again, we won't be studying all of chapter 3, but you can see how we are set up to see the choice, the sinful choice, the failure of man, even though God had graciously given them so much. God's gracious provision is seen, first of all, in the garden. This is a little bit of a grinding of the gears in the text, honestly, But again, I think the author is doing that so we would see something very important. The second gracious gift of God to man is the woman, the garden and the woman. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Textually, this actually just kind of bursts onto the scene. We've been studying for over a chapter, a chapter and a half, and God has said everything is good, everything is good, everything is good, and suddenly, in one short, jarring statement, the author highlights something that is not good. But this is intentional. 
because this is God's good plan all along. God's good plan, not an adjustment to his plan, God's good plan was to fix what was not good. What was not good? Notice, here's what wasn't good. Adam's condition without Eve was not good. Adam's condition without Eve was not good. Verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. And all of us men said, amen. It was not good because it did not reflect God's relational design. Now, what we're going to see as we continue reading is that God, I want you to notice these things. It's not good that man's alone. And I want you to notice God will be the driving, creating, giving force in fixing that problem. God will bring the gracious gift, not Adam. Adam was not given an opportunity to go to Amazon.eden and select the wife of his choosing. God gave him what he needed. What else are we going to notice? She will be a helper that is fit for him. I want you to notice two of those words. She will be a helper. This is where you need to take the time to look at words in context. You need to understand them. You need to chew on them. Have a good study Bible. Read notes. Ask your pastor. Say, hey, pastor, you got any of those thick books that I can just kind of look at and maybe get a little more of an understanding? Pick him up off the floor because he's fainted, and then he'll show you a book or two, okay? When we hear the word helper... All too often we think of, oh, look at the little boy on the back deck. He's daddy's little helper. Oh, look at the little girl who's pulled her chair up to the counter while mom's making supper. Oh, she's mommy's little helper. And we think of this almost this diminishing word or, the, or this idea of somebody who's, who's trying really hard, but you know in the end you're going you're gonna to have to remove a few screws, you're going to have to clean up the spilled sugar, whatever it is. That is not the word helper here, Okay. Ladies, the word helper in the Old Testament, 16 of the 19 times that it's found, it's used of God. God, the helper of Israel. Helper is not a derogatory or diminishing term. She will be a helper and she will be fit for him. It is a tra- it's a travesty if any way in any shape or form this text is ever taught in a way that makes ladies feel like some kind of second class creation helper refers to god and fit for simply means comparable to if you go like this and you put your hands together they are comparable to one another they're not the same but they are comparable to one another They fit each other. As one of my greatest theologians has said, Rocky Balboa, I got gaps and Adrian got gaps, but together we ain't got no gaps. Well said, Rocky. (laughs) The woman is not an afterthought. She is an intentional creation. Now, ladies, I want you to notice this too. This has been great because as as I've listened to Pastor Jim in the evenings, I'm just like, man, he is doing the deep dive on what I can only skim the surface of when it comes to the relational stuff, okay? So thank you so much, Lord, for working this out because this has been great. I'm going to skip across the surface, but ladies, pay attention to this. uh, Adam's condition without Eve was not good. God would be the driving force in bringing a good gift to Adam named Eve. She'd be a helper fit for him. And then look what has to happen. Adam is given a task to prepare him to recognize the gift he's about to receive. 
Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's what was its name. And the man gave names to all of the livestock, all of the birds of the heaven, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Ladies, this is a biblical proof text for why you need to help your husband get it when he doesn't get it. We can be a little thick. We can be a little dense. It's clear from the Bible. And God says, I am going to blow Adam away, but if I don't tune him in to his need, he won't even realize it. So I am going to Bring every animal, this is significant, God created these animals, but now he allows Adam to name them, that's authority. God brings all of these animals and he says, Adam, I want you to name the animals. And they start to go by. Now, we don't, we can't say for sure whether they're going by single file or two by two or whatever it is. We don't know, but we know that they're going by. And one thing we do know is that none of them said Hey, Adam, how's it going? Okay? That part is very, very clear. And as they go by and they get named and they get named and they get categorized and they get classified, they go by and they go by and they go by. And there's not a single one that is found to be comparable to Adam. And Adam realizes that he is unique in God's creation and he is uniquely alone. He's uniquely alone. And only after Adam has been made aware of his need, verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man And while he slept, what's the man doing? He is out. He is out cold. He is asleep. He is passive. And out of his side, God took a rib, closed up its flesh, and from the rib that the Lord God had taken, he made a woman. It is no wonder you guys look so much better than us. We're made out of dirt. God used actual good existing material for you guys. He made a woman. And look at the next phrase. Look at this carefully. And he brought her to Adam. The woman is God's gracious gift. She is for Adam and from Adam. She is made by God, and God brings her to man. She is God's gift. I'm not super great at surprises. I like to do things for my wife. I like to get gifts for her and, and things like that. But they stay surprises for about 47 seconds. And then I'm like, look, look, look what I did. And God is bringing this gift. God is bringing her to Adam. And Adam, (laughs) Adam does not disappoint. Okay? Verse 23 says, Then the man said. Look at your Bibles again. Does the text look different? Is it set off? Do you see that? How it's in its own space. I I had a slide up here. You don't get to see it. But if you have an iPhone and you do GIFs or GIFs or whatever you want to call them, just search like, yes, yes, yes. And I think he's like an ultimate fighter. And he's just like, yes, yes, yes. That was what I had for this slide, okay? Because that is exactly what Adam is doing. Adam said, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she will be called, whoa, man. Because she was taken out of man. In the Hebrew, it's she will be called Ish because she was taken out of Isha. Our English actually shows this very well. Look at woman and look at man. They're obviously words that are connected, right? And Adam absolutely bursts out in poetic praise. 
Guys, when's, when's the last time you let your love and affection for your wife, your absolute appreciation to God for her, allow you to burst out in poetic praise to her? I, I don't care if you are rotten with words. Give it a try. Give it a try. Because the very first response of Adam to God's gracious gift is to praise her and recognize all that she is to him, for him, and from God. Adam is overjoyed. That is what this text is stressing. And ladies, what else is being uh, stressed in this text is Eve's absolutely essential contribution, her necessity to Adam, not her inadequacy. God's design is being fulfilled. Adam could not do everything that God had called him and given him to do without her. You are not God's plan B or some kind of supplemental thing. The scripture is very, very clear that if there was any reason for the delay, if there was any reason for the way God laid things out, it's because men, he wanted us to see how absolutely essential the women are. It was always there in the mind of God. It was always the perfect thing in the mind of God. And the stress of the text is so that Adam would open his eyes and see the gracious gift that Eve is to him. And that's not just for that unique couple. Look at verse 24 and 25. These are editorial comments. It starts with, therefore, therefore. There's significance here. This isn't just Adam's lucky day, and it doesn't apply to us. This is setting the tone. The text is setting the course of God's design for, for our good and for gracious, uh, and his gracious design for marriage. He is laying the foundation for the rest of human history that a man would leave his father and mother and they would cleave to their spouse and those two would become one flesh. Boy, I wonder how that happens. That's interesting, isn't it? That's just a, a real riddle. How two become one flesh. Hmm, that's a thinker. I wonder what the Hebrew there is. You know, I have people come up to me and they say, boy, your kids sure look like you. And then I have people come up and they say, boy, I can, I can sure see some of your wife right there. Wow, it's almost like my kids look like me and my wife. But they're their own person. It's almost like two became one flesh. I wonder how that happened. Okay, I, I thought you guys would get that more quickly, but <laughs> I've got five kids and some of you have less, so maybe you don't get that as well as I do. <laughs> there is a very, very clear indication here that absolutely connects to sex, to intercourse, to the physical, intimate relationship that God has given. And he said, I'm going to do something extremely important through that. And I am going to make two one. And that's in the marriage, the two become one. And to give you an illustration of, of just how strong I'm going to make that, I'm going to allow children and procreation to happen that are an illustration of how I am knitting you together through that process. Pastor Jim was so right when he said the other night, God doesn't just want you to be good friends, he wants you to be lovers. That's a truth that's right here in the scripture. And it's unpacked even more in verse 25. And they were naked and not ashamed. They were totally vulnerable, totally open, and totally innocent. And there was no shame. Something we've started doing just probably in the last year or two years, is sometimes we, we sit down uh, in an evening and, and I pull out my computer and we throw the pictures up there on the screen and we go back through old family pictures. And every once in a while, you know, we come to the, the little kids in the bathtub picture. And, 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 you know, you try to do the angle thing, you try to make it as PG as possible, but sometimes you get a little baby butt or something else in there. 
And, you know, they're, they're in the tub, they're, in, they're, they're just like, yeah, they're smiling, and they're so happy in the tub, and you're taking their picture. They are naked and unashamed. And then that child, who is now a teenager, is sitting over here on the couch and sees that picture of themselves, and they're like, Dad, come on. Why? Because that innocence did not remain. That design for that vulnerability and that openness, unfortunately, was broken by sin. But it was there. And even though it may be broken and marred, and lust, pornography, and adultery, fornication, and all kinds of other things can hurt it and harm it, they cannot destroy what God has given. It is his gracious gift. The gracious gift of the garden, the gracious gift of the woman, are reflections of a gracious, generous God. Well, what do we learn from creation? The first point was the gift of the garden. The second point was the gift of the woman. Third thing, the final point here this morning is what do we learn from creation? First of all, I'll try to repeat these for you. What we learn is that mankind is God's unique creation. I know we made that point yesterday. It's being hammered home again in this text today. What do we learn from creation? Number one, mankind is God's unique creation. He's the pinnacle of creation. He's the image bearer, the recipient of God's grace. He's cared for. He's accountable. We are created for relationship. We're created for worship. And we are created for willing obedience. God wanted his, his creation, his, his creation of man, his creation of mankind, he wanted them to respond to him in love and to obey him freely. Not like robots, not without choice. He gave them a choice. And this is a reflection of his image. Mankind is God's unique creation. The second thing is this, God is gracious he is generous, and he gives good gifts. God is gracious, God is generous, and he gives good gifts. I'll say it one more time. God is gracious, God is generous, and he gives good gifts. The earth and all of its provision, gift from God. Work and a purpose for life, gift from God. Gender, male and female, gift from God. Marriage, gift from God. These gifts are all designed by God. They point to God. They are for his glory and for our good. And when we understand them and apply them correctly, these gifts bring great joy and satisfaction to individuals, to families, and to humanity. Human, humanity flourishes when we understand and use God's gift, God's way. Listen, are you listening? I'll say this more than once too because you might want to write this down. God's provision can only be truly enjoyed according to God's prescription. God's provision can only be truly enjoyed according to God's prescription. What he has given can only be joyed, enjoyed according to how he has commanded it to be enjoyed. Remember that. The third thing we learned from creation is this. God designed gender and God ordained marriage. God designed these things. He ordained these things. They are not evolving categories. They are not human institutions or constructs. They are gods. Does that mean we shouldn't get a marriage license? No, that's not what that means. Listen carefully to this. To the extent that a society supports and promotes God's design, 
To the extent that a society supports and promotes God's design, those are good ideas. I love the children's tax credit. There are things that societies can and should do to promote the stability and the welfare of the family unit. But when they are doing that, they're just getting on board with what God has already designed. They're just falling in step with what he has already said is good. And when society and culture does anything that lowers that understanding, that takes away from that understanding, or let's be honest, when outright flat contradicts what God has said about marriage and the family, that is wrong, it is unhelpful, and it is hurtful, and it should be rejected as such. God designed gender and God ordained marriage. God created man and fe- male and female. They are equal, but not indistinguishable. They are equal, but they are not indistinguishable. Gender differences are by God's design, and they point to his relational nature and to the church of Christ. Now, guys, I know you'd love me to give you a homework assignment there about, you know, equal but not indistinguishable. you got to talk to your wife about that, okay? Let's celebrate our differences God created male and female. Secondly, God ordained structure, uh, the structure of leadership and followership in marriage. God ordained the structure of leadership and followership in marriage. Again, this is what Pastor Jim has been able to unpack so well. This is not all men over all women. This is not all women submitting to all men. That relationship of leadership and followership is couched in the covenant of love and understanding and within a unique relationship of husband and wife. Adam was incomplete, and Adam was incapable of fulfilling his God-given commission without his helper who was fit for him. There is singleness. There's God-ordained singleness. Some of you may have seen us walking around with my sister, Bethany, yesterday. She's single. And man, does she use her singleness for the glory of God and for the good of her family. She's the fun aunt. She has a truck and a four-wheeler. I drive a Prius. She's got a riding lawnmower. She's got more tools in in her garage than I've ever owned in my entire life. I've got four other brothers, and I feel like the sixth most manly person in my family. (laughs) She she hunts things. She she just, she does all kinds of things that, that, that our kids just love to hang out with Aunt Bethany. And she serves the church. She's musically talented. She's gifted. She does so, so many things for the church that she's a part of. In no way, shape, or form do I want any of this to sound like I am lowering what it means for a single person to give glory to God by the way they live their life because the scripture is clear on that as well, that God has allowed and God has ordained that some people would be fully devoted to him with all of their life because the person who is married does have a divided loyalty. Paul says that to the Corinthians. But the normal design For the majority of people, as laid out right here in Scripture, is that one man and one woman would become one flesh, and they would glorify God in that. That is what we learn from creation. So how are you responding to creation? That's my challenge for you as we end this this morning. How are you responding? Creation is speaking to you. Are you listening? How should you respond? Love, worship, and obey the God who made you. Let me say that again. Love, worship, and obey the God who made you. This is why you were created. God has prepared human beings, both male and female, with the spiritual capacity and the communal assistance to serve him, says Ross. 
We were made to keep his commands so that we might live and enjoy his bountiful creation. Love, worship, and obey the God who made you. This will bring you fullness of joy. The second thing you should do is be thankful. Be thankful for the good and gracious gifts of your father. He gives you what you need. We are at family camp. And again, Pastor Jim's message was so convicting last night as he talked about parenting because I have had this happen to me multiple times already this week. We are at camp. My kids are partying, partying all day long. There's 52 acres of fun for them, okay? And they get to do whatever they want and they get to climb and we've gotten to do some extra special things. We get to go on a boat, we get to do crafts and, and they have not paid for it, all right? They are not busting out their piggy banks and their thin little wallets for any of it. And then we go to the snack shack. And of course, the most appetizing thing on the menu is the most expensive thing on the menu. And since I have so many of them, I say, we are going to pay the extra 50 cents and we're going to get the biggest twister we can and you're going to share it. You're the worst daddy in the world. We never get to do anything. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Aren't you glad, adults, that you and I are never guilty of looking at all of the gracious blessings of God and forgetting to be thankful? I have so much. I could sing of the goodness of God. I will sing. He's been so, so faithful to me. And I forget. And I whine. And I accuse him of not being the generous father that he is. Oh, I don't do it verbally. But I do it in my heart. And I do it with my discontent, and I do it whenever I fail to give him thanks. Love, obey, and worship the God who made you, and be thankful. And then finally, trust your creator. Trust your creator. Here's a little limerick that is taken from the verses of Matthew 6, 25 through 26. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why those anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, I do think that it must be. They must have no heavenly father such as cares for you and for me. Ouch. Jesus juked by a bird. But all too often, it's true. The other day, Jim said, do our, do our marriages look different than the world's marriages? Because they should. And if you know Christ is your Savior today, if you know that you have a gracious, generous, creating Heavenly Father who is sovereign over everything, then does the way you face stress and struggle look different than the way the world does. Austin came over and sat down and he apologized. He said, sorry, I kind of got preaching there. And I said, no, man, I love it. Because the text of scripture that he read, I have right in my notes right here. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who freely gave his son for us, how will he not graciously give us all things? If the God of heaven since the God of heaven gave Jesus Christ for your eternal soul, is there something that he's not going to give? Is there something that he's going to withhold from you just because he's stingy or ungracious? No, he has freely given you all things in Christ that you need. And I hope today you are well aware of that. 
that Christ is your Savior, that you had a testimony to share with your children during family devotions? Do you know that the Creator God is sovereign over your life? Are you obeying Him? Have you submitted to Him and come to Him and received the gracious gift of salvation? And are you living like it? Are you living like the Creator of the universe loves and cares for you because He does? And that should change the way you go out from here and the way you go home and the way you live the rest of your life. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for these wonderful, wonderful truths. Thank you for Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and the basic, undeniable truth that they teach us. May we live in light of them, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.